Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Welcome to the Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Trey Orndorff, a political scientist at Oklahoma Christian University, and I'm joined by the professor of law at Chase Law School, Ken Katken. Ken, welcome back to the Politics Guys. It is good to be back. So every, you know, we're, we're coming back a little bit sooner to give uh, Mike and Jay a, a break, but you're doing it from, a, a, you know, remote locations on, on both goes. You know, we had talked a few weeks ago about maybe your title. I wonder if we need, don't need to get persistent or I don't know something about having the grit when the, when the other two hosts can't do it. We really always can. <laughs> yeah, they, they're not doing it because they're traveling, but I'm traveling and I'm, I'm doing it anyhow. Exactly. So, I mean, so we got Jay, the defender of freedom. I just feel like we still, I'm, I'm still working on that effectively. <laughs> so I'm just throwing that, that back out that, there. Yeah. The it, it, for those of you on, uh, yeah, the relentless <laughs> Ken, Cat, Ken, relentless cat Ken. I don't know. That could work. That could work. Well, what, we got a bunch of fun uh, uh, show items coming up today. So let me just run you through what we're going to be getting to in our format. And this is going to be for everyone. Uh, we're going to be talking about the Kansas vote on Roe v. Wade. There's a lot of uh, data to dive into that. We're going to talk about that. Then we'll move on. That's going to transition to us chatting about the rest of the primaries this past week, uh, what that might tell us about the midterms and, and if there's any silver linings for Democrats or if it's just all, you know, smoke and mirrors for them. We're going to move forward and talk a little bit about the bipartisan U.S. senators who are attempting to codify Roe uh, and the unlikely possibilities of that, but why that might be moving forward. We'll also talk, and we're going to get into some detail, about Pelosi's trip to Taiwan, which I think is a historic moment as we kind of think about a lot of oxygen has been taken up with Russia, rightfully so, but we'll be talking about what's happening with China. And then from there, we'll be moving right back to the Russian question as the Senate added uh, Sweden and Finland to NATO in a vote. Of course, there's more to go down there, so we'll talk about that. And we've got a few other stories if we have time. So we're going to take just a moment. We're going to pause right here, and we'll be back chatting about Roe v. Wade. Ken, so this week, both Democrats and Republicans alike were more than a bit shocked by the vote in Kansas on Tuesday. In that vote, Kansas voters overwhelmingly rejected a ballot initiative, which would have allowed state legislatures to enact abortion restrictions. As a matter of fact, you take a look at the data, it was 58.9% against that and 41.1% for it. So let's set this up a little bit because this can be a little confusing, especially if you're in a state that doesn't have these kinds of initiatives. The initiative was known as Value Them Both. And the amendment would have removed constitutional protections for abortion that came from a 2019 ruling by the Kansas Supreme Court. So that's what's going on. Now, when you dig into these numbers a little bit, though, Ken, I saw some things that were, you know, were, I think worth talking about. I'm, I'm going to point a few out. I'm sure you've got some, uh, a few to point out as well. One is turnout. 
turnout was high. As a matter of fact, this was the highest ever in Kansas for a midterm primary. It clocked in at 908.7 thousand voters. The next closest would have been 2020, where it just passed the 60,000 mark. But on average, what you're talking about in Kansas going back the last decade is right around, so, so, so the average there is going to be right around 400,000 votes. So again, 400,000 is your decade average, 908,000 uh, on this particular item with the referendum, the, the value them both. The other thing that I noted I'd like you to think about is, so you take a look at re registered Republicans and Democrats, right? Republicans make up 44% of the registered population. Just 26% of Kansas is registered Democrat, 30% uh, unaffiliated or other. Now, this comes again in a state where Donald Trump, is, as NPR has already noted, won in 2020 by 15 points. So. On the Democratic side, and many who are sympathetic to the Democratic side, they see this potentially as a midterm silver lining. Republican operatives, on the other hand, such as John Freely, argued that although this might be a quote-unquote wake-up call for the pro-life movement, he sees this as just a need to get on the same page and step away from things like gay marriage and focus in on inflation and economics, which is where people actually vote when you have names on the ballot as opposed to this, which he sees as being more about the referendum and some breakaway. So Ken, that's a lot of data I'm throwing at you, a lot of things. What are your thoughts on the referendum vote in Kansas? Yeah, well, turnout um, is the big story, um, but I think that's a good story for um, Democrats looking forward into November and into future fights, because to me what it means is that um, abortion will motivate turnout. And I think just just the same way that high turnout election was was good for this referendum, uh, high turnout election is going to be good for Democrats in pretty much all the, the midterm congressional elections as well. Um, I, you know, last time you and I talked about this, I said I thought abortion was the number one issue in November. And I think the Democrats have to work hard to make it the number one issue in November. Um, and I think it's, it's uh, there's there's a lot of. Uh, political upside uh, uh, from the Democratic perspective here to the, the, the Dobbs decision, um, even though it's going to have, uh, I think, a hor horrific effect on the lives of many American women. So one of the things I wanted to drill on that front, because I've been trying to think about that systematically, this is a little bit more of my wheelhouse, and that is, you know, Kansas, when you look at it structurally, is a little bit unique, legally speaking, which might explain some of the political participation variable. So for example, the, the protection to abortion in Kansas by the 2019 ruling in their constitution meant that they're in a very unique situation from, say, here where we are in Oklahoma, where there is no such constitutional protection. Do you think the fact that, the, 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 that there was an ability to strike it down on an amendment level encouraged participation because you effectively had a form of direct democracy where you thought, okay, well, I'm voting on this issue because this is exactly the issue I'm voting on. How do you think that then translates into a number of states where those protections don't exist? And so to get that win, you'd actually have to flip state legislatures, something that's probably not as likely and maybe therefore not as likely to create a uh, as big of a turnout boost. I had been kind of working through that, modelly speaking, in my mind. What do you think about that? 
Yeah, well, I mean, I don't think um, this issue can flip too many state legislatures because of the extreme gerrymandering. Um, it, it can flip some statewide races. Um, I'm feeling quite confident that the Dems uh, will maintain control of the U.S. Senate, where all the races are statewide races. And there's, you know, there's a lot of factors there, including some of the very poor candidates that the Republicans have nominated. But um, I, I do think that um, the, the the abortion issue um, is going to is going to affect those elections as well. Um, remember that in Kansas, it wasn't uh, a, a pro-choice initiative that the voters just voted on. Um, it was an anti-choice initiative, and and the voters yes, exactly um, turned exactly. out to to, re- to reject to reject the anti-choice initiative. So I I, I think it is it, it had uh, um, you know I think the 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 sponsors of the of this uh, amendment um, who had hoped to overturn the Kansas Supreme Court ruling guaranteeing abortion rights. They put it on a, a, a primary. Uh, they, they they put it up for vote on a primary election day rather than on a November election day, um, because they thought it had a better chance for, if it was a low turnout election, and they and they hoped that it wouldn't itself um, spur turnout. Um, and especially in Kansas, you know, one of the political conditions of Kansas, I, you were mentioning some of its unique conditions. So many of the um, uh, legislative seats there are either so gerrymandered or just in places where there aren't any Democrats anyhow, um, that generally there's very little reason for Democrats to turn up for primaries because they'd be voting in primaries where there's usually not a contested seat uh, for the Democratic nomination because usually whoever is the the nominee is going to be a sacrificial lamb anyhow in a in a um, unwinnable November election so you know republicans have something at stake in their primaries cuz their primaries are likely to choose the actual um uh, candidate who will win you know whereas democrats you know have essentially nothing at stake in most kansas primaries because you know they have no hope of 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 seating someone who's going to win a general election, so the primaries for that reason are very skewed towards Republican voters. Um, but nonetheless, Democrats turned out in incredible numbers, and and Republicans as well, because I think about a quarter of the Republicans in Kansas also voted to keep abortion legal in Kansas, but I think three quarters of them voted um, uh, against that. But but Democrats turned out in incredible numbers just for this abortion issue, even though there was no other reason for them to turn out um, uh, in the primary election. So I think that does show that this this is an issue that's really motivating people. Let's get into those numbers you were talking about, because I brought some of those up. Yeah, I mean, one of the one of the things in mind is just total registered Republicans in the state. That's 40 percent, 44 percent of all registered voters in the state are Republican and just 26 or about a quarter of registered Republicans in the state are Democrat. And you brought up another uh, important data point there, which is, you know, about a third ish of the voters who showed up who were Republican uh, rejected the ballot initiative as well. So one of the things that, that you know, Again, I'm I'm still trying to work through. I don't know if I'm necessarily as convinced as you are that this is going to be an inflection point for statewide races, although it could in some. I'm not opposed to that. What I think it might definitely say, and and that is, is that there is this idea that Republicans are kind of lockstep on the issue of uh, pro-life. And and if in Kansas you you know you can't get closer to a hundred percent of Republicans doing that, I think it's pretty clear that 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 
is a wrong position. And I hear that both from the left and the right frequently, right? The left criticizing uh, Republicans as kind of all being uh, uh, pro-choice, excuse me, pro-life nutties. And likewise, Republicans who are pro-life kind of assuming that others are all just like them as well. I think this really highlights a little bit of the diversity. Now, I mean, again, we know where I come down on this particular one. Um, but I do think that that reality is not one that both political players always recognize. Yeah, I, I, uh, I would say Republicans, political players used to recognize that. Um, and I think that that's why um, President Reagan, President George H.W. Bush, um, even President George W. Bush, you know, given the opportunity to do what Trump did, which was to just put enough justices on the court to overrule Roe, um, I think they all purposely tried not to do that uh, because they could sense um, that, you know, Roe was something that Republicans wanted to be continuously and permanently running against, but never succeeding in getting overruled. And uh, and that Trump was really the first one who didn't, you know, understand the subtlety of that. And he um, got it overruled. And I, I do think that, you know, Democrats are almost entirely pro-choice. They really are lockstep on that issue. And Republicans have always had um, a minority segment of the Republicans um, who are also pro-choice, and Americans as a whole are pro-choice. And so I, I think it is, uh, um, you know, it's going to be a wake-up call. It's going to be hard to keep those pro-choice Republicans voting Republican when abortion is actually on the ballot. This brings me to a little bit of uh, political science knowledge that, I, that, that might be worth sharing. And, and you were getting at it here, so this is a good juncture. One of the items in the study of Congress is there's this kind of revolutionary thought. When you think about legislative bodies, or really think about any kind of government bodies, but let's focus on the legislature here because that's what we're talking about. When you think about legislative bodies, you think, well, what are they supposed to be doing? Legislating, right? Of course. Cool. But is that really what they want to do? And so there's this guy named David Mayhew who actually posits this really famous theory that we still use, but it's the beginning of it that says when you drill down to it, politicians, legislatures are not going to be as interested in legislation as you might think because that's not where the payoff from voters is, right? Voters are not particularly willing to reward individuals for hard legislative work. They're really rewarding them, in other words, reelecting them for these other kinds uh, of reasons. And the one of the ones I want to point out that Mayhew has here is this idea of position taking. And what Mayhew is arguing is that the position and having that position is far more important for reelection than any legislative activity that one might undertake to accomplish that end, right? Because it allows voters to signal and say, ah, this is the person that I want. And I think for a long time, the pro-life has been on that front. Even, I mean, again, I'm one who's on that particular side, but it's easy to think, okay, then once we get it, we win, but not necessarily. And political scientists, you know, we could have told you like, look, winning an issue doesn't necessarily get you rewarded uh, at the ballot box in any meaningful way, especially if it takes away your ability to have this kind of position take. And I think one of the reasons you don't have the position take now is there's no easy way to signal what you are. 
There's a lot of confusion about what that is because now we're arguing about, okay, well, what form ought that or ought that not to take? I, and so I, I, it's always – I always like being able to bring a little bit of political science. Is Mayhew one that you were familiar with, Ken? I mean, and you, the idea of position-taking, is that one no, that you're familiar with? No, I, I didn't know well? it, but I, 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 did not know, I did not know that literature. I appreciate you for bringing that up. I think it's the same thing I was saying. I just didn't know the literature about it. But I – yeah. So exactly. that when, you know, yeah, you I have, wanted to talk about it, and you were saying – I thought, let's, just, let's put the name on it, right? You know, this is what it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. Right, because you, know, you have a lot more people – who don't like abortion and think of themselves as pro-life until they actually see, you know, a 10-year-old girl raped by a neighbor having to go across state lines to, to, to terminate a pregnancy. And then, you know, when they see what that really looks like, you know, it's a wake-up call for, for some people. And, and so I think, you know, being able, to, being able to just position on issues, you know, where there's no changes in law happening is one thing. But when changes in law are having, you know, visible and I would say very harmful effects on real human beings and 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 people kind of see what that looks like, um, I think then you're you're you know, it's, it has a different look than when people are just positioning earlier. And also, I think the whole concept of um, pro pro choice Republicans, which was always a minority coalition within the Republican Party, um, it, 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 it's possible to be that it, it, as long as you think the Supreme Court has taken the issue off the table anyhow. So someone who agrees with Republicans on taxes or trade or defense or immigration doesn't agree with them on abortion might say, I mean, it might not have a lot of problem voting Republican because it doesn't matter what the legislature thinks about uh, abortion because the Supreme Court has taken it off the table. But now that the Supreme Court's put it back on the table, um, it may, you know, I think I think this can this Kansas turnout number really shows that it's a extremely important issue to quite a lot of people, um, uh, including some pro-choice Republicans. Now, there was something else that you had said earlier, and I wasn't ready to explore it quite yet. And I thought we might finish up talking about it a little bit because it'll segue uh, nicely into our next uh, topic. That is, you you said that you think the Democrats are going to retain control of the Senate. I'd like you to talk into that a little bit more. And do you think that's primarily due to the abortion issue? And and uh, and you you had also mentioned, to be fair, you would also mentioned the issue of some historically potentially weak Republican candidates. So talk into both of those for just a moment. Yeah, I think Pennsylvania, um, th- those two issues make it certain to flip, right? So I, I can't exactly assign... Uh, um, you know, how much of it is about abortion and how much of it is about, uh, you know, um, the, the, the weakness of um, uh, the, the Dr. Oz. But um, I think when, when you add the two together, um, there's no doubt that Pennsylvania is going to flip, I think. I, I'd put that in the 99% category um, that the seat really? that's currently okay. occupied. Yeah, yeah. The seat that's currently occupied by Toomey, who's a retiring Republican, uh, will soon be occupied by Fetterman. Um, so that gives the, that gives the Dems a pickup already. I think the Dems have a very decent chance at a pickup in Wisconsin for similar reasons. Now, Ron Johnson is an incumbent running for reelection, um, but I think he's a weak candidate. And I think Wisconsin's a pro-choice state where Democrats have been able to win statewide elections. It's a, it's a severely gerrymandered state, um, and it's hard for, for Dems to get any traction in the state legislature or in the congressional delegation there because of the gerrymandering. But I think um, I think that the I think Wisconsin's another likely Dem pickup, and uh, and I do think the Dems will hold on in Georgia with Warnock um, against Herschel Walker, 
um, who's another weak candidate. Now there, I would say I'd put probably more of that to the strength of Warnock and the weakness of Herschel Walker as candidates rather than to the abortion issue, which I think is more mixed in Georgia than in Pennsylvania or Wisconsin. But, you know, I, I yeah, that's sort of what I'm looking at here. I, I, I don't I don't see how all three of those go bad uh, or even two out of three of those go bad from a Democratic perspective. Well, one of the one of the that I'm I'm wondering there, you know, Oz, I think, is going to be a phenomenal case uh, example. I often think that the popularity name recognition element of elections is underappreciated. It's one of the reasons early on I had more rapidly, despite despising him, thought that Trump had abilities to move forward. I don't think it's – I think one of the problems when you're trying to analyze races is assume a lot of it has to do with strong or weak candidates in the sense of they have particular kinds of issues or structural. Now, if you're talking about the structural side of it, right, where the race is going to lean, I mean, having, you know, a known name is always preferable to a non-known name name in these races. So I honestly think that that weirdly, even though he might on paper in some ways be a weaker candidate, gives an advantage in, in a tight election to Oz when you just look at the data of, What's one of the reasons why incumbents will win over and over again in part has to do when you start drilling down into the study of legislative names. Those names that are around more often seem to win more often. And in our universe, I mean, again, take a look in, uh, you know, it's a different kind of race. We'll talk about it more here in a minute. Uh, but take a look at Carrie Lake in, uh, in Arizona in the gubernatorial race who this morning finally just uh, picked off her primary opponent despite having uh, mentioned that earlier in the week. Uh, I'm just curious. Talk into that for a minute, and then we'll move, and then we'll, we'll then we'll move into our next story because we're we're talking about all the primaries anyway. Yeah, I agree. Uh, Carrie Lake's going to benefit from having been a popular TV news anchor for a long time um, in Arizona. Um, that'll be a tight race, but uh, you know, in in Pennsylvania, um, you know, Dr. Oz is a, a, a TV doctor with name recognition. But, you know, Fetterman also, he's been the lieutenant governor. You know, he's he's six foot seven and has a very unusual kind of look that people remember. You know, I, I think in Pennsylvania, both both candidates um, have a lot of um, name and name and face recognition. OK, so like you were saying, well, he's got equal name recognition because he's the lieutenant governor. I would I, I wouldn't be willing to bet that you can't even find a double digit number of individuals in anybody's state who can name their uh, lieutenant governor, even among, uh, uh, even to make it a finer point, even if you put it just among, just polling registered voters. Well, in most states, I would agree with that. But I think Fetterman, you know, for other reasons, which I also mentioned, you know, his his being six foot seven, his being very unusual looking um, and him, him having an unusually high profile. I knew who Fetterman was, you know, for a long time before he entered the the, the Senate race. And I don't even live in Pennsylvania and I can't always name my own lieutenant governor. But I, I think I think <laughs> okay, Fetterman fair, um, fair. Is, is is an unusually high profile person, um, and I think Oz is a you know a, a, a basically um, a, a laughable person. Now I you know I have my perspective on that, which is a partisan perspective I get, but I I, I just think you know he has the kind of name recognition that would make people inclined to not take him seriously. And he's also being trolled a hell of a lot for living in New Jersey, which he does, and not even living in Pennsylvania. And uh, um, and I think, you know, that's one of the things people who know who Dr. Oz is also know that he lives in New Jersey. And I, and I don't I don't I think that that, you know, so the, the name recognition comes with the negatives that go along with people knowing about him as well. 
Well, before we take a, uh, before we kind of switch topics here, I will just say, who picks New Jersey over any other state? How do you mean? I, I was just making a joke. Like, in other words, like, who wants to oh, live in New Jersey? Jersey. Yeah. I've, ne- I've never heard of anybody say, like, Jersey, that's where I want to be, right? <laughs> anyway. Well, Bruce Springsteen. Um, that was a terrible joke. Yeah. <laughs> Bruce Springsteen. Oh, true. Bruce Springsteen. True yeah, picks New Jersey over any other state. Yeah. <laughs> true story. True story. <laughs> Well, why don't we get into talking a little bit more about these primaries in, in general? You know, uh, so one of the things that, I, you, know, we're, we're, you know, we're talking about Oz already. We're ta- we, you know, I brought up uh, uh, Carrie Lake in Arizona. One of the big questions is it appears that Trump wins a lot of ways in this past week, but that might mean the party is in a worse potential position on that front. I mean, it, it, as a matter of fact, so for example, haven't mentioned this yet, but right, uh, Rusty Bowers, after defying Donald Trump and testifying before the January 6th committee, you know, he loses his uh, state Senate bid. His quote, of course, what I'd, I'd do it again in a heartbeat. I'd do it 50 times in a row, end quote. But that was not the winning position tonight, despite individuals like myself who were hoping we'd see a little bit on that front. Uh, you know, the outvoting the fraud view, which is the view of, uh, of Carrie Lake and others, you know, seem to win. Man, as a matter of fact, take a look. Even, you know, Pence's candidates uh, performed pretty horribly, including uh, Taylor Robinson. You were already kind of getting in at this. Is that part of why you're making the prediction you are at the Senate? You see that these kinds of more Trumpian candidates are kind of doomed to failure? Yeah, I mean, I don't know that they're doomed, but I think they're generally um, weaker candidates in competitive election. Not not all these elections are going to be competitive. So, you know, in in some of the um, elections, either in gerrymandered House districts or in states with strong partisan leaning one way or the other in statewide elections, um, you know, I think party uh, party nomination is going to be more important than quality of candidate. But in in some of the um, uh, competitive elections, and there will be some. Um, yeah, I think quality of candidate will matter and that the, the Trumpier ones are, are, are gen- generally lower quality. In fact, I think there were even news stories, which I really question. You know, there, there was a spate of news stories in the last week or so saying that um, Democratic uh, candidates and PACs were actually spending money to support the Trumpiest candidates because they'd rather run against those candidates than the more mainstream candidates. And I think that those kind of that kind of news reporting came up uh particularly in connection with um, the incumbent House member Peter Meyer in Michigan, who's you know one of the public who voted to impeach Trump. And uh, he, he was just defeated in his primary election by a, a Trump-endorsed candidate. And there was a, some reporting suggesting that Democrats had been spending money to help get the Trump-endorsed candidate in. Um, I don't think those stories are actually true. And w- when you read those stories, you know, they're I think there's a, a lot of spin in the way they're talking about what the Democrats were doing. Um, there's there's no there's no um, Democratic money that was spent um, other than in attack ads against the the Trump the Trump endorsed candidates. But the uh, the the some of the reporting is is saying well by by running these attack ads against the Trump endorsed candidates they're they're building up the Trump endorsed candidates and. Uh, yeah, I don't. I don't think that's accurate. But I think the the idea that that narrative is out there is is very much um, consistent with the idea that you were just saying, which is um, that that um, Dems would prefer to run against Trumpier candidates. 
Well, let me bring some data to play here as I want to drill into this a little bit more because one of the things that I have always thought about carefully has been, especially in the post-Trump age, is that narrative about Trump and Trumpian candidates versus some of the data on the ground. So I was curious, took a look. If you take a look right now at Joe Biden's polling numbers, right, he's got a 55.7% disapproval rate and approximately a 39.2% approval rate. That puts him well below Donald Trump, right? Donald Trump, as of our last polls, although still pretty unfavorable, uh, beats him by just a little bit inside the margin of error at 53.4 and 42 uh, uh, on the nose precisely. And I think sometimes that those, and maybe this is my presidential scholar (laughs) coming out of me, I think presidential approval rates often give us a, a better potential picture of that large takeaway when you're attaching it to a candidate. And so when I see a lot of the, hey, wait a second, I think these Trumpian candidates are going to do more poorly, they're always doing poorly relative to some particular environment. And in this case, we're talking about, for better or for worse, the the Biden presidency environment. And I'm I'm wondering, what, what do you think about the fact that we still, you know, again, Joe Popul- President Biden is massively unpopular. How does that come in, especially given that although we might personally not like Trump, is polling better than him. How, what do you think about that? Yeah, so there are some uh, polls that people are already doing um, with a, about a hypothetical 2024 rematch election. You know, who would you vote for, Trump versus Biden? And those are pretty even right now. The, the, those polls are, are not um, showing one or the other winning right now. And I guess they're both fairly unpopular. Um, I, I think the the... the Biden's um, present unpopularity, which probably won't turn around that much by November, but I, I hope it will. Um, you know, there is just, a, I think, a number of, you know, great successes in the last week's news, ranging from, you know, getting the new um, um, climate bill through, which they're calling the anti-inflation bill, but it's going to be a major legislative accomplishment, and uh, getting um, um, the, the, the uh, Zawahiri uh, the the Al Qaeda leader uh, killed and uh, um, expanding NATO. You know, there, there's a lot of things that Biden's doing right now, which by ordinary standards should be increasing his approval ratings. Um, but we're in a kind of media environment where um, you know it's you know it is difficult to do that. Um, but I think uh, I, I I do think that um, the twenty the 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 2022 midterm, while being a uphill battle for Dems because of that. Um, ultimately, there's only there's only a few battleground states with competitive elections, and I think for the reasons that we were talking about, the quality of the candidates and the abortion issue, um, I'm feeling pretty optimistic. And I think polls in those states are starting to turn more favorable for Dems um, than they were even a couple weeks ago. Well, Ken, what I think we might want to do here is uh, a break. And then come back because we're starting to kind of talk about some of the legislative achievements potentially coming out. And that obviously hinges on the Senate. And the next big issue that we want to take on is this past week's bipartisan attempt to codify Roe, among others. So we're going to just take a brief pause. We'll be right back when we come back. We're going to be talking about the attempt to codify Roe. 
Okay, so the next topic we want to get to is this kind of bipartisan U.S. senators attempting to codify Roe. On Monday, a group of Republicans and Democrats released legislation to codify Roe v. Wade. Now, the list isn't shocking, especially, uh, well, really, they're neither on the Republican or the Democratic side. You've got Susan Collins, you've got Tim Kaine, you've got Lisa Murdowski, you've got Sinema. Uh, um, now, I mean, we all know that this isn't going to pass. But it might get a floor vote. And I think the hope for some is, is that especially in light of what we've been talking about in Kansas, is this might make people take positions and therefore change that midterm uh, um, layout that we were talking about earlier. Now, so far, at least as of uh, Friday, uh, Schumer hasn't said that he's going to push it forward for a floor vote. But I I feel confident that if I was he, I would want to do that. What do you think about the fact that we we have this bipartisan group did it right at this uh, this time? Uh, you know, I, Republicans obviously have to be feeling particularly upset <laughs> with a couple of these names uh, because it potentially puts them in a difficult position in light of what we saw in uh, in Kansas. Uh, w- what do you think about this movement, and, and how does it maybe tie in to some of those larger achievements that you were talking about at the end of the last story, Ken? Yeah, I think he will bring it forward. I, I think the delay right now is because of the um, they haven't voted yet on the the I would call it the climate bill, but the bill that Manchin's calling the anti-inflation bill. Um, I, I think that that's a very high priority thing that they're going to move through maybe tomorrow, maybe maybe Sunday or Monday. Um, uh, but um, I, I think right now, when when Schumer says. Um, you know, doesn't say he's bringing it to the floor. It's only because he doesn't want to throw a monkey wrench in in that climate bill's progress to the floor. But I think as soon as the as soon as the climate bill is voted, the abortion bill will come to the floor. I, I don't think there's going to be the 60 votes to pass it. But you know, but it is at this point more about positioning. Um, and I hope that they'll follow it up with contraception bills and with same-sex marriage bills, and and with you know I think there should be votes every day on these kind of bills. Um, all all the implications of the Dobbs decision, you know, I, I, I if I was Schumer, I wouldn't let a day go by in August, September, October where there wasn't a vote on some bill like that. Well, I mean to to kind of put that timeline into perspective. Uh, late last night, of course, uh, Kristen Cinema offered the the support that was going to be needed for that inflation or the move forward bill or excuse me the you know the the, the scaled back uh, uh, build back better bill uh, so it looks like it's going to have the 50 votes and again as a reminder it can move forward uh, by 50 votes because the parliamentary has argued that it can uh, move forward through that reconciliation process so it sounds like what, what you're saying is hey we don't want to scare cinema or other individuals but of course but she's one of the ones in the bipartisan group, so it seems unlikely she would necessarily be one who would be potentially skittish. Um, what other kinds of things might you bring forward? You said, look, you're not going to let a day go by where you're not going to take some of these floor bills. What else might you would you bring forward? Well, con- contraception, same-sex marriage, for for sure. Um, uh, you know, I would try to you know look. Th- I mean, some of these bills, if you look at all the different types of um, unenumerated liberties that the U.S. Supreme Court had been protecting. Uh, prior to Dobbs, um, you know, some of them I think even Republicans would vote in favor of. So you could have something like an extended family's right to cohabitate bill um, or um, a, 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 a parental rights bill. 
or things like that. So there, there's some of those kinds of unenumerated rights that the court has protected. Um, but I think with abortion in particular, you know, there's a lot of different kinds of abortion bills that can be brought forward. So not only could Roe be brought forward, you know, the bill to just reinstate the Roe regime, but the Roe regime itself had a lot of individual rules that were part of it. Um, so for instance, um, uh, you could have a particular bill on spousal notification that, that, um, that, that, that women should not have to notify their husbands um, in order to get an abortion. And, you know, that's one of the rules that was protected under uh, Roe and again under Casey that, that went away under Dobbs. You know, bring that back as a freestanding bill and, and have a vote on that. Um, have a vote on a bill to give um, the opportunity for, for girls under 18 to get a judicial bypass, which would, where a judge could allow them to get an abortion without notifying their parents. Um, you know, all these kind of subsidiary abortion bills, which Roe Ro and Casey had developed a whole doctrine, but I would break out those those doctrinal rules one at a time and just keep voting them and just just have as many votes as possible. You know, again, not with the thought that it's going to any that many of any, any of them are going to going to get 60 votes, but just with the thought that going into November, the more votes like that, the better. So, in, in effect, just breaking off the pieces of the judicial doctrine that has, I think, and that's, you were talking about that, that's something that kind of worth pointing out. We oftentimes talk about Roe as being this singular thing, but in all honesty, and, and this is not just a, 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 a reproductive or an abortion issue, right? There are really no legislative doctrines that, you know, there's just one case, <laughs> right, that deals with it. It, mm-hmm. it, is a, it is a body of common law. It's a body of judicial precedent that builds on itself to deal with all these kinds of specific issues that are coming up. I mean, matter of fact, I mean, you, even as an, inter, you know, as an undergraduate, you take a con law class, which is nothing like what you're going to be teaching. And that's what you're doing is you're kind of tracing some of these, uh, uh, these judicial precedents as they, they cluster together into a nucleus of understanding. So you'd say, hey, look, break each of these little bits of the cluster off, put them up for a vote so they have to just take these votes over and over and over again. Yeah, I might even go a step farther, too. And like, so, for instance, the Equal Rights Amendment to the U.S. Constitution has had this strange history where by now 38 states have, in fact, ratified it, which is the number that it takes to do a constitutional amendment. But they... Um, you know that not not within the relevant time frames, um, so we don't we don't have the Equal Rights Amendment. But I think just putting the language of the Equal Rights Amendment up for a congressional vote to make it an equal rights statute, um, uh, which would just say um, equality uh, under law shall not be denied on account of sex. Um, you know, have a roll call vote on that. I'll bet I'll bet the Republicans would filibuster that one too, and uh, and I think that would be uh, another you know very politically beneficial thing for the Dems to take into the November elections. Now, this brings us to kind of a procedural and a more technical issue, but maybe something for the for us to then talk to listeners about. That's what you're listening to politics guys for. All of these kinds of things, right? So again, to go back, the reason that Cinema's 50 vote, 50th vote is so crucial is because the parliamentarian has ruled that because it's reconciliation, you don't have to meet the uh, the ability to end debate or the the cloture rule in the Senate. I you don't need sixty votes proceed on a particular issue. And you're right; it's unlikely that you're going to get any of these because any one particular senator can change the number of individuals who you need to pass a particular bill from fifty to sixty. And as, as the two of us, we've talked about it on the show, the number of bills 
that now have to reach that threshold have grown over time. Uh, but so I guess we've talked about that portion. As we talk about this, here's where maybe some of the rubber and the procedural uh, understanding how the sausage gets made meets the road. How many individuals do you think, if these things get filibustered, will actually impact anybody as they're making electoral choices. It, it, it's, a, it's a difficult process to understand, and you wouldn't necessarily have a vote on those bills. You'd be having a vote on whether or not to have a vote on those bills, which, again, that, that's, that seems like a bunch of meaninglessness, but it is, in fact, what's going on, and it, and it does change, to some extent, the perception on those kinds of votes. W- what do you think about that for those kinds of plays, thoughts on that front? Well, I, I, I think the second part of what you said, I, I, the, the, the distinction between a, a vote on a, a bill or a vote on whether to have a vote on a bill, um, I, I think that's too subtle for voters to understand. So I, I think it will be um, perfectly possible politically. You know, if, if you get a if you get a 55-45 vote on whether to have a vote on a row bill, and and the 45 who vote not to have the road, uh, uh, vote on the row bill have therefore filibustered the the row bill. Um, I think the public will be able to understand that as being identical to um, they they voted against the the row bill. I, I don't think that the subtleties are gonna. You know, I, I think it'll be harder for them to understand the subtleties than to understand the the substance, which is that the people who filibuster a bill are actually voting against the bill um, and blocking it. Um, so I think they'll get that. Um, I think that, you know, it, it's going to help the Dems to nationalize this election and nationalize these issues. Um, you know, these are issues that in 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 the country as a whole, um, the the public opinion is squarely on the side of the issues that the Democrats are on. And and public opinion is squarely against the issues that the, uh, the sides of the issues the Republicans are on. Now, there, there may be a few states where that's not true, but there's many, many more states today um, including states that vote Republican, um, who agree with um, uh, the Democratic side of the abortion issue, the contraception issue, uh, the gay the gay rights and same-sex marriage issue, uh, the equality under law issue, and and so I I, I think it it can benefit. I, I get what you're saying that the um, you have to take that down to the state level or to the district level and and ask you know in each individual race you know but is that really going to make a difference in this race? Of course that's you know, that's of course the right way to think about it. But what I'm just saying is that there are some races where it will have to make a difference if it makes a difference in the country as a whole. Yeah, and again, to put, to put that argument in context, which what you're effectively saying is, look, I recognize that it's a more di- you know midterms under these environments are more difficult for the Democratic Party, but these are the kinds of variables that will tip the scale slightly in the other direction. It's it's going to put, it, or maybe not slightly. I I just mean it's going to be putting its finger on the other side of that scale to kind of counterbalance some of those structural uh, um, negatives the Democrats are having there. Yeah, that's exactly what I was trying to say. So thank you. Okay. So why don't we move forward? I mean, we're talking about the Senate. Let's move forward and talk about the Senate just a little bit more. Uh, You know, this past week on Wednesday in a 95 to 1 vote, U.S. senators approved membership for Finland and Sweden. Uh, Several senators voted president. The, The singular vote against uh, came from Josh Hawley, who argued that we needed to be fighting China not Russia. And we're spending too much time effectively uh, thinking about our, our Russian uh, alliance. 
He said, we can do more in Europe, devote more resources, more firepower, or do what we need to do to deter Asia and China. We cannot do both, end quote, Hawley said. He called his approach classic nationalist, but obviously none really of his uh, opponents, excuse me, none of his colleagues agreed with that outcome. Ken, before I have you say anything, I'm going to pause for a minute. All of a sudden, your microphone is picking up enough background static, and I don't know what's going on. Yeah, well, I, I think, you know, as, as 95 out, 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 out of 96 senators who voted uh, thought, um, Holly, Holly is just wrong about this. The, the United States, besides being, you know, incredibly more militarily powerful than any country on Earth, it's been our policy since the end of World War II to participate in both NATO and CATO, the Southeast Asian Treaty Organization. And we, we can certainly be strong enough uh, to um, protect Europe and, and protect Asia. Um, and in fact, it was, you know, one of the strategies for protecting Asia from China was the um, President Obama's attempt to get us into the Pacific Trade Treaty to draw us closer to the other Asian countries as a bulwark against China. And I believe Holly voted against that. Um, and so I, I don't know how sincere he even is about the idea that we need to be doing more to protect uh, Asia against China. Yeah, I mean, Trump, you know, that was right at the end of the Obama presidency. Trump ends up torpedoing that deal as well. Uh, you know, you don't even end up getting all of the votes on it because Trump pulls back, which I which I saw as being one of the first and the one of the major economic uh, blunders of the early Trump presidency was not following through uh, with deeper integrative ties to Asia that Obama had kind of left on his doorstep to run with. I mean, that would, I think, would have been an easy and again, a classic Republican position to create, uh, you know, better trading conditions uh, with our Asian partners and thereby Again, this coming from, I recognize it, a, a, a libertarian perspective, those kinds of agreements decrease the likelihood for war. Yeah, well, that to me, that's the bigger part of it. Like, I'd say, actually, from my perspective, PTT, if you think of it from an economic perspective, I don't know that I think it was good for American workers. Um, but I would support it anyhow, really for the political reasons more, more than the economic reasons. I think it's really, it was important for the US to develop much closer ties, closer economic ties lead to closer political ties, closer friendship um, with all the, the Asian countries that surround China um, as a way of kind of isolating China. Um, and really when we didn't do PTT, that forced those countries to become more involved with China, which gives China more power over them. So it's, uh, you know, from I, I really see that as primarily the benefit of it as having primarily been political. And I think for, you know, the, 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 the senators, which I'm sure included Hawley, who were criticizing the PTT, you know, it, it seems a little disingenuous for him now to be saying, well, it's more important for us to, to protect our friends in, you know, I don't know if he named the countries, but like South Korea or Taiwan or Japan, you know, against China. Um, well, you know, we had a, we had a chance to develop even more of a presence in those countries. Yeah, I, I, I think a lot of it has to do with the, the last and the next story that we're going to take on, which is Pelosi's Taiwan trip. But it, it is it is strange to me in some ways, although I suppose it shouldn't be. It is always strange to live through party reposition taking, right? 
So, you know, one of the things that you get, once you have Republicans and Democrats being established institutionally in the United States as the two major uh, parties, uh, because of our electoral rules, we always have two major parties and always have. Uh, But we, you know, the parties themselves had shifted over time. What happens once those two parties become entrenched in in the Reconstruction era is effectively why those two institutional groups continue. It doesn't mean their actual uh, ideological or their primary bases remain the same, right? So, for example, you know, uh, re- Republicans were traditionally the city and the northeastern party, uh, and this switches uh, as uh, kind of with the southern strategy of uh, of Nixon. And and I really do feel, and I'm curious about this, Kim. But when I take a look at like Hawley's comments, and I take a look at the post-Trump Republican Party. I, I see I, – I think one of the things we're going to look back on is say, well, this is the area of a party reorienting and that the, the political parties as we think of them, they'll still be Republicans and Democrats, but what they are will be different after this inflection point. What do you think about that? It's one of the things I just can't help but seeing, especially in the conflict with the Ukraine uh, – against Russia and and the sides that have been taking there. And then again, as we've seen now, and again, we'll move in a little bit more with the the Pelosi trip, you know, kind of like, why are you being belligerent to China? I I see some of that emerging, especially as as it relates to to international issues. Thoughts about that? Yeah, I mean, well, the the vote, you know, on, uh, uh, on Sweden and Finland entering NATO, was 95 to one. So that, you know, we're, that is pretty bipartisan. Um, and I think, you know, when, when Obama was trying to negotiate the PTT, um, the, the support and opposition actually was both more bipartisan than usual, right? So there, there were the America firsters who were opposing the PTT, but there were also like the, the Bernie Sanders wing of the Dems who were also opposing the PTT. So I, I think, you know, I think the, on these issues, I don't know that everything's broken down along the, the usual partisan lines. You know, I, I think when when Nixon first went to China in the 70s, um, one of the reasons he was able to do it was actually because, um, you know, he he wouldn't be accused of being um, uh, pro-communist, right? That if, if if a Democratic president had tried to go normalize relations with China, um, they, they would have been accused of being soft on communism or pro-communist or something like that. And so by the time Nixon went, uh, you know, there there was a, a very bipartisan support for for normalizing relations with with China. So I don't know that these things always follow um, uh, partisan lines. I I do think that the, the kind of um, you know nativism, you know, which in t- in some forms I would call white nationalism, um, you know, which is a, a, a force within the Trump wing of the Republican Party. Um, I you know I hope that's not uh, a mainstream thinking within the. The, the, the Republican Party. I mean, I, I think, you know, if you listen to like a Hawley talking about, you know, why we should not worry about Europe, but, 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 you know, fight China. I mean, there's kind of an element of, you know, because Europe's white and China's not. And, and I, you know, that I think is a little bit, you know, deplorable, but it is, it's, it's, I don't think it's where most Republicans are. I think it is where some Trump Republicans are. Um, but I don't, I don't know if I'm fully addressing your, your question or not, or if I've, I've kind of missed the, the import of it. I think you're there a little bit. I, I, I guess on some of these issues, and you're right, I mean, maybe, maybe, maybe part of my problem is, is that you're, I'm, I'm missing the overarching forest of the 95-1 vote to the tree. Uh, 
and maybe I'm just a little surprised that we have one senator who who moved in a direction that I find kind of bizarre from his own point. But that, yeah, I, 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 I maybe I, I'm going to say in this case, Ken, that you've actually just kind of convinced me that I'm wrong on that front. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you. I wasn't sure. Yeah, I wasn't sure quite if I even had addressed it. So that's good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> good job. Good job. Well, I, I do. Yeah. I want. I want to leave some space so we can talk about uh, you know our last big issue because I think it's 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 worth some talk. And that was you know we've had the lead up this way to Pelosi's Taiwan trip. Uh, a lot of question: Will she? Won't she? Should she? Shouldn't she? Uh, but she ends up doing it, and she uh, is in Taiwan, gets out in response. China takes some st- uh, drastically um, b- belligerent uh, tra- uh, tactics. It will surround Taiwan, the small country. Uh, it will launch rocket and ballistic missiles. As a matter of fact, uh, we have the co- reports confirmed as of Friday uh, that they launched missiles over, uh, as a matter of fact, over uh, Taiwan. And likewise, it, it appears at this juncture that this includes things getting into uh, the the space of South Korea. Uh, and, and this doesn't appear to be over yet. They're going to continue to do this for a number of days. Uh, Pelosi, for her part, argues, look, we can't we can't make our decisions about who we're going to stand up to to the person who says, well, I'm going to shoot the gun. Uh, But that that doesn't always seem to be what everybody like. What do you think about this? It's a complicated one. I, for one, I mean, I'll just I'll just start off by saying. I, I liked Pelosi's trip. I'm not always a big yeah, Nancy Pelosi supporter. I mean, rarely, I guess. Uh, but but I, I, I'm not a big fan of the idea that we shouldn't do things because somebody with a big gun says we ought not to do them because that seems to me to be kind of be the opposite of maybe what you want to do. Now, I don't want anybody to get killed necessarily, but... Uh, you know, if you say, look, if we're going to stand up for Taiwan, if that really is going to be our position, it seems hard to take it if it simultaneously say, but we're not ever going to send anybody there to you know, talk or have a negotiation because, well, China doesn't want us to. Uh, but, but maybe you have a different perspective. What did you think about it, Ken? No, I have the same. I have the same perspective as you. I'm. I'm glad she went. I think it was absolutely the right thing to do. I, I would put this in the perspective also of um, think about China's conduct in the in the the recent and more distant past in Hong Kong more recently and in uh, Tibet um, a little longer ago. You know that that um, you know and and even in Uyghur province, which is in China, but you know which has non-ethnic Chinese living in it. Um, the, the the Chinese government has you know increasingly been um, ratcheting up a, a, a policy of, um, you know, essentially, you know, taking over other territories that, that, they, that they have some kind of claim to, and then, um, you know, moving quickly to uh, end freedom and establish totalitarianism in those places. And, you know, it happened, you know, first, I think, in Tibet, um, and, and then, you know, more recently, the, the China violated the Hong Kong Treaty, which guaranteed political freedom in China in Hong Kong for 99 years, um, we're nowhere near that that 99 years yet, and they've basically ended it already. Um, they've always had a rhetorical commitment to the idea that they're going to take back Taiwan one day, and and we've always had a rhetorical commitment to the idea that we will protect the independence and freedom of Taiwan. You know, even within a, a system where we will ultimately recognize um, that it has some affiliation with with China. Um, and China, I think, has been starting to make moves to move on Taiwan the same way it recently moved on Hong Kong. And I think if, if we have the policy that will protect the, the I think it's about three and a half million people 
um, who live on Taiwan, or I could be off on that number. Um, you know, but there's people who live there who have a, a, a freedom and democracy and who are um, friendly to the United States. And, uh, um, you know, I, I think it's right to protect them. And so I think it's right for the U.S. to keep um, acting the way we've always acted. And, you know, many Congress members have gone to visit Taiwan. Um, you know, I think the last time a congressional leader went was Newt Gingrich about 25 years ago. But, you know, even as recently as earlier this year, um, a, a bipartisan group of U.S. senators was over uh, in Taiwan. And it's it's not an unusual thing. It's a normal thing for, for, for members of U U.S. Congress or U.S. government uh, I think when it, during the Trump administration's uh, the Health and Human Services Secretary Alex Azar uh, went over there, um, it's it's kind of a normal thing for U.S. government officials to go there. And if if we suddenly say, well, now China says they're going to make trouble if we go, so we better not go. Like that's the first step towards basically you know ceding Taiwan to the same kind of fate that um, Hong Kong's in the middle of suffering right now. The only thing I would add, which I I don't know, I I haven't media coverage of this, and this is my own speculation, is the, the way it was reported in the media, uh, Biden sort of publicly called on Pelosi not to go, and she went anyhow, and, and he said, well, I can't tell her what to do. She's Speaker of the House. Um, I don't really believe that Biden, I think privately he told her it's fine if she goes. I, I, I really can't believe that you know, there was a bona fide conflict between Biden and Pelosi about whether it was a good idea to go. I, I think Biden probably thought that the best thing to do was for her to go, but for him to kind of maintain some plausible deniability. And I, I do think that was orchestrated and coordinated, not not an actual. Uh, I don't think she actually disregarded his actual intent. Now, can I ask a question on this front? I, you know, I'm not the belligerent Republican, right? I mean, so that, that's never been my position. But I too had looked at that, and I and and like you, I think it's probably a strategy. But it felt like a terrible one because the the narrative of the Biden presidency is that he kind of lacks control and that he doesn't have especially international resolve. And it felt to me like by taking that path, I don't know precisely what he gains. I I don't think that China behaves any differently whether he makes that comment or not, I mean, especially seeing we've seen it happen, but it, it seems like he ends up ceding a lot of international moral authority, which is really crucial for the presidency. Uh, and, and while, of course, that helps uh, Pelosi in some ways, and I mean, there's nothing wrong with that side of it, it, it really does seem to put him in a weakened position. It seemed like a terrible strategic play. So I, agreed, I agree with you on the front of, I think that that was, you know, a calculated move, but it seems like a really terrible calculated move. W what would you say to that? I don't agree with that. I mean, it's a, it's a difficult situation to think of what's the right move. But remember, president, no U.S. president has gone to Taiwan, right? So there's been this this little bit of um, you know the, the U.S. policy is kind of very subtle because it, it at the same time that we've always committed to protecting um, freedom and democracy in Taiwan, we've also always committed to the one China policy where we recognize that ultimate sovereignty over Taiwan resides in the People's Republic of China, that it's not an independent country. Um, and so I think, I think for a president, it would be more provocative for the president to seem to be involved in, in, an, un, in an unprecedented way 
in um, sanctioning uh, um, s some new way of disrespecting the one China policy. Whereas um, since since Congress members and congressional leaders have traditionally gone there, you know, the idea is that really what we're doing is maintaining the status quo. The status quo is that Congress members go there and presidents don't. Um, and and we're and so what we're trying to message out here internationally is we're accepting no changes in the status quo. We're not we're not escalating hostilities, but we're not um, accepting um, a reduced role. And and so because of that context, I think um, that he basically played it right. That that if he would have um, you know made more um, forceful statements in support of the idea that he wants her to go there, I think that actually would have been an escalation because I don't think U.S. presidents have done that before. Whereas, um, you know, I think for Congress members to just go there, that's more aligned with what um, has been done before. Well, Ken, that's a fascinating perspective, but we're going to have to leave it there. And that's going to be it for this week's show because we've kind of run out of time. So I always want to say, if you're not already a supporter of the politics, guys, I hope you'll consider becoming one because without you, there's no way this podcast is going to keep on going. You get all kind of fun, good stuff, though, if you become a supporter, like an ad-free version of everything we put out, in addition to our supporter-exclusive midweek show. That's where we're going to start breaking away from the news cycle, and we're going to start talking about things in a broader context. We're going to start having some mini-series. We're going to do some, I think, some really fun stuff. I've, I've been excited and thinking about this for a long time, and so I'm really hopeful uh, that you will be excited too and want to carry on with me and Ken in a way where we're not just discussing those news items, but getting a little bit more deeply into kind of ideas and thoughts about politics. So if you want to become a supporter, if you want to kind of see what the rest of it is, or if you just want to get rid of the ads in this show, uh, you can do that by going to patreon.com slash politics guys. Or if you'd like, you can also support us on Venmo where we're at politics guys. Additionally, you can support the show through PayPal. All of our support links are in the show notes as well as by heading to politicsguys.com slash support. So right there in the link. Now, by becoming a supporter, one of the other really fun things you get to become a part of is our very active Politics Guys Discord group. Uh, there's even Politics Guys gear and other kinds of benefits at different levels. Again, to see all of that, head to the support links or head over to politicsguys.com support. Now, if you'd like to get our midweek show, but you're just not in a position to financially do it, I mean, I get that, right? I've got three kiddos and we're on a single salary. It's, it, it can be tough sometimes. That's not a problem. It's one of the things I like about us. All you got to do if you want to do that, if you're in that kind of position, is just, just email Mike at mike at politicsguys.com and, and, and he'll set you up. Whether you're a supporter or not, we would really appreciate it if you would subscribe, rate, and review us on whatever podcast app you use. Of course, Apple is the best, but all of them count. I'm teasing. So please share those episodes on social media and connect with us there as well. If you've got a question, comment, correction, gripe, manifesto, or just something you want to share with all of us, we really do, in fact, read it by sending it to mail at politicsguys.com. If you're a supporter, though, don't forget to head to Discord. We'll get there as well. We're also on Facebook and Twitter, and you'll find all those links in the show notes. The executive producers of The Politics Guys are Bruce Johnson, Wilma Marino, Andra Masker, Daniel Toe, and Ryan Beasley. We'll be back with a new episode next week, and I hope you'll join us then.